If you turn to Psalm 77 this evening, I think that was one of Derek's requests to be in our supplement. He said of the three hymnals we've had, we've never had that hymn. And uh, that was interesting for me. That I hadn't noticed that. So, uh, But anyway, I think we've sung that a good bit. And I think some of the musings and the stanzas of that hymn, as well as several of the others this evening, uh, fit with the psalm that we come to tonight, Psalm 77. Again, we're looking at these psalms of Asaph. And here to the chief musician, to Jeduthun, a psalm of Asaph. I cried unto God with my voice, even unto God with my voice, and He gave ear unto me. In the day of my trouble I sought the Lord. My sore ran in the night and ceased not. My soul refused to be comforted. I remembered God and was troubled. I complained and my spirit was overwhelmed. Selah. Thou holdest mine eyes waking. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I've considered the days of old, the years of ancient times. I call to remembrance my song in the night. I commune with my own heart and my spirit made diligent search. Will the Lord cast off forever? And will He be favorable no more? Is His mercy clean gone forever? Doth His promise fail forevermore? Hath God forgotten to be gracious? Hath He in anger shut up His tender mercies? Selah. And I said, this is my infirmity. But I will remember the years of the right hand of the Most High. Surely, I will remember the works of the Lord. Surely, I will remember Thy wonders of old. I will meditate also of all Thy work and talk of Thy doings. Thy way, O God, is in the sanctuary. Who is so great a God as our God? Thou art the God that dost wonders. Thou hast declared Thy strength among the people. Thou hast with Thine arm redeemed Thy people, the sons of Jacob and Joseph. Selah. The waters saw Thee, O God, the waters saw Thee. They were afraid. The depths also were troubled. The clouds poured out water. The skies sent out a sound. Thine arrows also went abroad. The voice of Thy thunder was in the heaven. The lightnings lightened the world. The earth trembled and shook. Thy way is in the sea, and Thy path in the great waters, and Thy footsteps are not known. Thou lettest thy people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Well, amen. We end our reading. Trust the Lord to bless the public reading of his word to our every heart. Let's bow our heads together. Heavenly Father, we come tonight. We have lifted hymns of testimony and praise Lord, some hymns as the psalm we've read tonight of the searchings of hearts that are perplexed and perhaps overwhelmed. And we ask for grace, Lord, that you might speak to us afresh through this psalm. Lord, whatever our individual circumstances may be, that you'd have a word for us. Have a word of help in the midst of difficulty, a word of instruction. Uh, before difficulties would arise, 
Lord, whatever it might be, give us grace tonight as we consider this psalm. And we pray it in Jesus' worthy name. Amen. Well, I mentioned a couple times along the way in these psalms of Asaph that I thought I had remembered somewhere Spurgeon mentioning that Asaph often struck a chord in the minor key. Well, it is his treatment of this psalm that he makes that statement, and we'll say perhaps more on that in a moment. But I think if we come to the psalm that's before us this evening, this morning we considered from Revelation that vision of Christ that is given to John and to the church and then to us in the different and ebbing and flowing days of our pilgrimage here in the earth. Well, This psalm is one of those that speaks to us when we're at the low ebb. It is a psalm that is coming out of a heart that is so greatly troubled. We'll see in one point, verse 4, he says he can't speak. There's another text that what we see in the third verse, or the last part of verse 2 rather, that smote my heart more than a decade ago, my soul refused to be comforted. Uh, This is in some ways uncharted territory for many in the things of God. The psalmist is wrestling here and he comes to a point, and one I was reading pointed out very particularly, uh, that this psalm is not a corporate psalm. It's not the psalmist speaking on behalf of the church or on behalf of the nation or on behalf of the Lord's people. It's not in many ways the Lord speaking through the psalmist to the people. The psalm's a prayer, and that in itself is encouraging because prayer is an act of faith. And this man was wrestling with unbelief, but he found himself making use of the means of grace and was helped in that regard. But I think if we were to choose to do so tonight, we could dwell on any number of what we might call layers of distress. If you look at the condition of the world, the political and moral chaos that surrounds us, you think of the physical crises and dangers that we haven't tasted of perhaps yet here, but just the deprivation of necessary things. We could look at the church and consider, obviously, the the impact of apostasy over the last century, the havoc that it's wrought. One of the things I mentioned this morning is a gentleman spoke to me last Sunday in Burlington, I want to share a little bit of that in our prayer meeting on Wednesday, uh, just by way of testimony, but it has to do with the impact of apostasy and being brought out of that in his own life. But certainly we can look at the, the shipwreck that is the liberal church. I don't know why, but a couple of the blogs that I somewhat keep up with in recent weeks have been commenting on the impact of compromise in the evangelical church. In the latter half of the 20th century, there was such compromise, such watering down of the gospel that the evangelicals lost the evangel. They've had to rediscover the gospel that they claim to believe. And certainly we could be perplexed and overwhelmed if we thought very long on some of these things. You think of the theological confusion that has overwhelmed so many even of conservative Bible believers the personal crises and crises of assurance that come with such things as 
ignorance on those truths. And then you can, well, you can turn your heart and your gaze to the conservative church and, and find sins even there. You find sins of pride and party spirit and personal ambition. These things can bring the soul great distress if, they, if we ponder them very long. Well, these things may impact us. They should impact us. But the psalmist, and we don't know the particular context, the particular outward circumstances that pressed upon him, but those circumstances were of such a nature that he was overwhelmed nearly. He came to a point of great danger, as we'll see as we come into the psalm itself. And so I want to entitle our psalm tonight, A Psalm of Comfort for the Comfortless. As we find that phrase, I say, closing out verse 2. The psalm divides in some ways, if you look at the selahs, the poetical divisions, into four parts. But the third and the fourth, in many ways, are, are on the same theme. They're, they're striking the same chord. Asaph, as it were, finds the major key uh, in those last two sections. So I want to really deal with those together and look at the psalm from three uh, vantage points this evening. And the first one, really, just in those opening three verses, well, you can include actually down to verse 6 under these thoughts, but I just suggest this with regard to the opening of the psalm. Here is perplexity that's tending toward despair. Perplexity that's tending toward despair. Whatever the circumstances are, and we'll see in a moment, the psalmist is comparing the current circumstances with previous circumstances. He knows a little bit about church history. And he knows there have been better days than the days he's living in now. And it's such a point that it nearly overwhelms him. I say perplexity that's tending toward despair. This is where I want to bring along something Spurgeon said with regard to this psalm and then with regard to Asaph in general. He said he often strikes a chord in the minor key that he and this psalm in particular is not for the inexperienced and not for the faint of heart. I wish I'd jotted down the rest of it. He said something about knowing a little bit about the seas, lest you be overwhelmed by an Atlantic gale. I think sometimes those men from the 1800s and a lot of the hymns we sing have something of the stormy seas involved in them rather than the not-so-friendly skies we might be in at times. But here's, here's a psalmist that is coming to a point of perplexity, I say, tending toward despair. And he, if we could borrow from one of the other psalms, his feet were almost gone. And if you look, and I want to start from this opening section from verse 3 and work a little bit backwards from that regard. If you look at the third verse, he said, I remembered God and was troubled. I complained and my spirit was overwhelmed. You come to the point that where thoughts of God overwhelm you. He has a heart for God. He has a heart for the kingdom of God. For the things of God. And it's perplexity with regard to these things, with regard to this kingdom, that has nearly overwhelmed him. Again, we'll see, he's, he's remembered days of old, 
And when he compares those to the current day, he doesn't get it. Lord, you've done this for your people in the past. You've made yourself known in these ways in the past. And look where we are now. How can we possibly be where we are now and you still be in control? This, I say, is a perplexity that's tending toward despair. If you go back to the second verse again, working backwards, this, this being overwhelmed and troubled at thoughts of God and the things of God, there's a stubborn pessimism that he's wrestling with as well. In the day of my trouble I sought the Lord. My soul ran in the night and ceased not. My soul refused to be comforted. reading a couple on the psalm that gave from pastoral observations, experience they'd had with parishioners that had been distressed and were pulling themselves away from the things of God. They would take, I think he used the word cordial, any spiritual cordial that was brought unto them and they would thrust it against the wall and refuse to take it. What an awful and what a dangerous place to be in which we know we're troubled. We know we're spiritually depressed. We know that we need help, and then we won't take the help that's afforded to us. There's a stubborn pessimism that has captured his soul. But then I say, working backwards from verse 3, where the psalm opens... Thankfully, we we understand from the very beginning that he's not there. He's been rescued from that precipice. And he said, I cried unto God with my voice, even unto God with my voice. Several of the commentators pause to comment on, at times, the, the impact and the help to pray audibly. One even pointed out, Hebrews reminds us that the Lord Jesus cried with strong crying and tears in the days of His flesh. But to force ourselves, as it were, to frame the words, to audibly bring them to God. The psalmist thankfully has made use of the means of grace and hasn't fallen off the precipice. He came to its edge. And if you consider the second thought I'd suggest to you this evening is meditation, discovering unbelief. He has, in a sense, refused to be comforted. Perhaps he has been like the one Solomon speaks of as the the one that's a heavy heart and you try and bring comfort and encouraging words to him and it's like pouring vinegar on nitre. Sometimes we get that way. I think that phrase, my soul refused to be comforted. We, we won't take comfort from anybody. What can they know? How can they help? And there are times perhaps some might seek to comfort us that haven't had the depths of experience or even the knowledge of the Word that we might have. Are we going to scorn their efforts? Well, the psalmist evidently did. But yet there was one he couldn't ignore. There was one he couldn't push away. And that thankfully was God. Thou, verse 4, holdest mine eyes waking. 
I'm so troubled that I cannot speak. I've considered the days of old, the years of ancient times. I call to remembrance my song in the night. I commune with mine own heart and my spirit made diligent search. So he's wrestling. And I say here there's meditation that's discovering something. The symptoms were, well, he was depressed. He is refusing comfort. He's perplexed. But the root, those are the symptoms. The root is unbelief. I've shared this with you more than once, I know, over the years, but I was really taken back. It was a Monday evening service at a minister's week of prayer in Greenville. It's one of those travel days. There's some weariness. We've in those days, we used to meet in the stairs backyard and have a big steak dinner before the first service. We'll add travel weariness. Of course, from here to Greenville is a little skip for us, but others were flying, long flights and so forth. Big meal like that, sit down for a short sermon. It might have been one of those times Dr. Karen said, uh, I'm just going to share a few thoughts with you. I don't want to really preach to you tonight. And the next morning, Dr. McClellan said, well, Dr. Cairns didn't preach to us yesterday, but whatever he did for 65 minutes last night was sure a great blessing. Well, he made the statement that one of the roots of worldliness is unbelief. And it really impacted me because I thought, well, you know, worldliness, you can have, you know, worldly desires. Uh, your 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 thoughts are, are are pulled out after the you know the bright shiny objects that Satan wants to put in front of you, and of course those types of temptations and sins can draw us out into worldliness. But he said, in many cases, one of the the key causes of worldliness is unbelief, because what precedes the reaching out and grabbing the shiny object, the failure to believe that God's better than that. So unbelief is a root of all kinds of sin. And the psalmist here is struggling with unbelief. And so he, before God, begins to ask some hard but rhetorical questions. Verse 7, Will the Lord cast off forever? And will He be favorable no more? Is His mercy clean gone forever? Doth this promise fail forevermore? Hath God forgotten to be gracious? Hath He in anger shut up His tender mercies? So here, while His memories of former revivals, His memories of former personal joys, verse 6, He begins to ask these questions. Well, can steadfast love one of those key Old Testament gospel terms. Can steadfast love be gone forever? Can promises, if they're uttered by the God who cannot lie, can they fail? Has God forgotten? Well, the only answer to that can be no. And here I say through these Musings, that meditation that is discovering his unbelief. 
You know, our faith, if we place it anywhere else than in Christ, remember that important bedrock truth. It's the object of our faith that matters. Our world glibly talks about people of faith and all of these things. It isn't faith even that saves us. It's the object of faith that saves us. We place our faith in Christ, who is our Savior, who has redeemed us by His blood. And so here, his faith is stirred as he meditates and he asks these questions that the answers to them are are simple and they're well known But when he's fixed his eyes so much on the circumstances, and then he somehow has interpreted that, well, my circumstances have to work out in a certain way in order for God to know what he's doing. Hmm. There's something wrong with that sentence, there's something wrong with that thinking. And that's as we considered something this morning we've we've looked at in the past. I think about that 11th chapter of Hebrews I think I referenced this morning with the heroes of faith and yet the, the lives they lived, the circumstances they lived through weren't the same and they weren't all circumstances of victory. Was God not there when prophets were martyred? Was God's purpose being thwarted in days of declension? Is God only working out and working everything after the counsel of His own will in days of revival blessing? And so I say there's meditation. Dare we say there's doctrinal thinking? Truth about God? study of our God. And I say that meditation discovers that unbelief that's started to creep in. And as the psalmist then wrestles through with those questions and that unbelief that he finds in himself, you come to verse 10 and here's the pivot really of the whole psalm in these last two sections with their seals or an overflow. It's interesting when you come to consider uh, verse 12. The psalmist says, I'll meditate also of all thy work and talk of thy doings. Well, he's moved a little bit, has he not? What did he say in verse 4? He said, I'm so troubled I can't speak. Now he says, I'm going to talk. I'm ready to speak of your doings. This last... Division, I would suggest to you, here is faith breaking out into song. I said, this is my infirmity. I will remember the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the works of the Lord. Surely I will remember thy wonders of old. I will meditate also of all thy work and talk of thy doings. Now here's something interesting. What it calls the psalmist a problem in the opening part of the psalm 
He was remembering prior days. He was remembering days where God had worked, where God had intervened, and God had done great things, and He wasn't doing that now. And so remembering former days at that point, and from the mindset of unbelief, was tempting him to despair. But now he's gone back to Theology 101. He's worked through some basic questions about God. And lo and behold, what's he doing? He's remembering again. He's remembering the same stuff again. And he's remembering the stuff that isn't going on now. But yet he's looking at those things from a heart of faith instead of a heart of unbelief. He had come to the point in his unbelief where he's somehow thinking that because his circumstances are bad, the church's condition is low and weak in his times, that somehow God can't or won't work. Well, when has it ever been true that God can't? And when is it true that God won't work again? He may allow seasons of great declension. He may allow a Pharaoh to be raised up, or a Nebuchadnezzar to be raised up, or a Darius, or a Cyrus, or a Caesar. But to think that he won't, work again? To think that He won't make all things right? That there won't be the day we read of this morning in which all the tribes of the earth will wail because of Him? Because they've desired to build their own world and build their own kingdom without Him? And He interrupts that and He returns? No, our God is in the heavens. He's done whatsoever He's pleased. And the psalmist is happy now to think about the former days. He's able to rejoice and see how God intervened. And it's interesting as you come to that latter portion of the psalm where he talks about the waters seeing God and being afraid. I mean, your mood has changed a little bit from being the place where you refuse to be comforted that you're almost engaging in little sarcasm as you, you talk about that Red Sea. You got a little scared. <laughs> Had to move out of the way. Make room for God's people. And you see the description of the storm. The clouds poured out water. The skies sent out a sound. Thine arrows went abroad. You think of the fear in the armies of Pharaoh what folly they discerned they were engaged in. It's that pillar of fire removed from leading Israel and placed itself in between Israel and their army and held their army at bay through the night as Israel escaped in that dry path from which the waters had fled. The psalmist is encouraged now to remember the days of old having reminded himself about God's character. He uses memory to encourage 
rather than to discourage. It's interesting that he names those that he does name here. He names the people as the sons, verse 15, of Jacob and Joseph. There's something interesting about those two. I mean, obviously their role in the patriarchal period and the wonder of their stories in Genesis, I just marvel. It's usually early in the year as I'm reading that portion of Scripture, unless we go back to it later in the year. To just weep through those stories. But there's one thing both Jacob and Joseph did. Hebrews remarks in one case, he gave instruction with regard to his bones. Don't bury me here. Bury me there. Well, those are men that died in Egypt. And you stop and think about that. What promise had God given Abraham? Make of him a great nation. That in him all the families of the earth would be blessed. And yet he's in Canaan for years and years and years. And he doesn't even have one heir. Of course, we know the story and the wrestlings of his faith, the wrestlings of Sarah's faith. And God gave them Isaac. But even then, Abraham had to understand that the blessing that was promised, the kingdom that he anticipated, would not be something he would see in this life. No, he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Abraham understood that the kingdom that was promised him would be a kingdom he would inherit and walk into post-resurrection. Jacob and Joseph know this as well. Their circumstances were not so good. It's a famine. It's not everybody under their vine and under their fig tree. They're dependent on another nation. A nation God had sovereignly basically given into the hand of Joseph to preserve life, to, through that quite tangible means, make sure His promise Preserve the seed through which Christ would come. But they were looking for a future day. And if you look at that description here as so many other psalms and other places, but verse 15 just puts it plainly, Thou hast with thine arm redeemed thy people. Redemption is one of those words that maybe we use so often we, we don't pause every time and think it through. One of the implications, one of the outworkings of redemption in the Old Testament, remember the story of Ruth, one of the provisions God had made uh, for the nation and the inheritance of the tribes, that if someone had come to poverty and perhaps had sold the family farm, if you will, um, 
they were in a year of Jubilee to receive it back. But there might come circumstances in which one of the heirs, or all of the heirs rather, are gone. And here's a family, here's an inheritance that is in danger of falling away from within Israel. Where there was the provision of redemption. That a near relative could redeem that inheritance when all other avenues were lost and exhausted. And that's one of the beauties of that story of Ruth. Boaz wealthy. In some ways it would have been at a cost to him rather than a benefit to him to redeem Naomi and Ruth. That kinsman redeemer. And our God, our Savior, has redeemed His people with His stretched out arm. He has rescued us when every other avenue of rescue was gone. Here, a psalmist that had reached the bottom, stubborn, comfortless, so troubled he couldn't speak. By the end of the psalm, what's he doing? Really, if you come back and compare the song of Moses, who's like unto thee, a God that does wonders, verse 14. There's a lot of that song in this psalm. He's now by faith remembering that his God is able that His God keeps His Word. And there's a redemption that's even far greater than the Israelites coming out of Egypt and inheriting the land of Canaan. That Old Testament redemption of the nation was just a picture of the eternal redemption of all of His elect. One of the papers that was read at the faculty summit I was at a few weeks ago was challenging something in a textbook about redemption being an overriding theme and was bringing alongside the theme of judgment and the warning of judgment. And I was trying to be a good boy through the different papers, but I had to just raise my hand at that point and ask a question. I said, could you define redemption for me without including or referencing judgment? Of course you can't. The very fact that Israel is in Egypt, that the death angel is sent, and that that plague of death of the firstborn representing all is sent. That's a fact. That's a pre-existing condition. But God provided a lamb. 
and he gave the instructions for their slaying of that Passover lamb and the sprinkling of the blood over the doorposts of their homes. And that angel of judgment would pass through. That he would pass over them. Because the judgment had already been meted out on the substitute, the lamb. God's redemption of his people. We can see the ebb and flow of world history, of church history. We see the awful impact of sin in the world, of course, but even in the church. But at those lowest of days, where we might be tempted as the psalmist to let our unbelief fester and have our perplexity just looking at circumstances push us toward despair. That's where we got to meditate. Go back to Theology 101. And let meditation discover that root of unbelief that will certainly be there. And then discovering that, have faith then lead us out of that despair into song. That's where you get the kind of stuff that we read of in Daniel with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. Daniel himself in the den of lions. Their faith, their joy rather, was not dependent on their circumstances because their faith was strong. So let us in times and circumstances of perplexity Pull aside. Meditate on core truth. And then leave that meditation. Well, we can say with the Song of Moses, but we have the New Testament. (laughs) The Song of Moses and of the Lamb we read in Revelation. Well, I trust the Lord will help us. This psalm, as Spurgeon said, that strikes a, a minor key Boy, does it break out into the major. He goes from not able to speak to talking of all God's doings and ultimately singing the song of Moses. Let's bow our heads together. Lord, it may be that none of us are at the low ebb that the psalmist was at this point But you've recorded this psalm for us that we might in such days know there's a pathway out. And perhaps even recorded such a psalm for us that we might, before entering into such a low point, discern it's unbelief that's leading me in the wrong direction. Lord, I believe Help thou mine unbelief. And so make that our prayer. 
in our perplexing times, may we not be a perplexed people. We ask these things in Jesus' worthy name. Amen.